Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Hairball Audio. For nearly a decade, Hairball Audio has been helping musicians and recording studios improve their recordings by offering high-quality outboard recording equipment in do-it-yourself kit form. Check out the full line of compressors, mic preamplifiers, and do-it-yourself parts at hairballaudio.com. Hairball Audio. Do it yourself without compromise. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Sure Legendary Microphones, Cutting Edge Wireless Systems, Premium Earphones and Headphones. Sure, the most trusted audio brand worldwide. For more information, go to Sure.com. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. And I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at NailTheMix.com. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I'm A.L. Levy, and I am getting ready to go to NAM. You're going to hear this a while after NAM, but just know that I'm about to go there, and I hope I see quite a few of you there. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be our first time having a booth and what can I say? Stoked about it. It's also a good podcast episode. My guest today is Nick Rad, and he's a mix engineer and producer from the Chicago area and he's worked with bands like Stone Sour, Skillet, artists like Hilary Duff, The Color Morale and many, many more. But What's especially interesting about this episode and why I want you to check it out is because I think it's relevant for those of you who are looking to make this your career. It's relevant because it shows just what's possible without having some smash hit. So without further ado, I give you Nick Rad and enjoy. All right. So Nick Rad, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I, I just want to jump right into it because uh, I have a lot of questions. You, you work with all different types of artists, and quite a few of them are at pretty high levels, but worlds apart in terms of genre. And so I'm curious about this. You know, when you look at artists like Hilary Duff versus Stone Sour versus Skillet, or the color morale, or anybody else you've worked with that's achieved a lot. Is there anything in common that you find between all those acts, regardless of if they're heavy as fuck or some pop singer? Man, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know if I have a good answer of how all that came came to be, except for, that's kind of a long story, but me going back to the beginning of how I started doing production work and how I started doing, um, coming from, from being in bands um, till I was 25, 26, and then at 26 to starting to get into production full on. I mean, the one thing that I could take away, what I wanted to do when I started doing production was making just things be be polished. And I think that was just my taste of, 
of how I hear music because I like things to be, you know, perfect, kind of pop. And, and that's, that's my taste. So I think going into my rock background, I wanted to start making records with rock and, and make it to be just polished, going through and taking the time to uh, edit the drums, guitars, you know, make sure vocals are tuned. And so I think my work along the years kind of just gradually went into this pop, more of this pop era, uh, um, sense here. And I started getting some work from Ledger and the um, Hilary Duff, uh, Rachel Platten, that kind of stuff where people were, I just kind of got good at making vocalists especially sound really good in the, in the post side of things. So that just kind of went into different different realms of of how I got all these different kinds of, of genres on, under my belt, which is, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, I enjoy it all. I enjoy going from the rock into into the Hillary Duff and into, you know, whatever, because it's just a, it's a nice, like, change for me, I feel. Well, it's interesting because I think that sometimes it actually can be a bad thing, but there's a few people, outliers, and I, I would consider you one of them, but there are a few outliers among producers that are doing well who can jump around genres. Typically, I find that someone experiences some success in a genre uh, and that becomes their calling card or their pigeonhole. You know, it's blessing and a curse and it's tough for them to move out of it, especially in metal. It's that mm -hmm, way sure. where uh, once you've done like a few big metal records, all the metal bands start coming to you and it's like, well, do I want to switch gears and turn that faucet off because they're just going to go to the next guy mm -hmm. or do I want to keep this train rolling? Um, and it's actually a very serious question because, you know, if you divert your attention, the train could stop rolling. They could just go on to the next guy. So I think it's a very, uh, it's a very serious question that someone has to ask themselves. But, you know, I don't think that that many and I consider producers artists, I don't think that that many artists are great at lots of different things. I think they typically find their voice, and sometimes, though, their voice uh, is compatible with multiple styles, mm -hmm. but it usually isn't, in my opinion. So it's kind of an outlier thing. Sure, sure. And I think, too, for me, I didn't really have a big record in my career that kind of like took me onto one path. And that's probably why I got into all these different kinds of, of genre. Cause I was just, I was just kind of like the guy that just kind of did work and it was just a word of mouth and kind of that, you know, that, that grew. So first of all, let me, I just want to key in on something you said earlier. It sounds to me like the, like you said, the common bond is the polish. So mm -hmm. that's what you're bringing to everything you do. And so that, that's where it sounds to me like that's where the compatibility lies is in, uh, the perfection that you'll bring to each project. But I also think that most producers uh, don't have, like, some huge record. Like, we hear about the ones with mm -hmm. a huge record uh, because it's a huge record. But I think that, you know, the, that's they're the statistical minority. I think most producers that are employed, doing well, supporting themselves and living like a, a respectable life mm -hmm. uh didn't have some smash hit like they did a bunch of good work for a long time word of mouth spread and you know they built a career that's pretty much exactly where i live right <laughs> what you just said <laughs> yeah well i mean sure but you have worked with some pretty large artists mm -hmm. so the, there's some people who sustain that off of local markets only. 
Mm-hmm. But I guess my point just being, though, that I think it's a myth that you need to have some huge smash hit to your name in order to make this whole production thing work. I would totally agree. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this out since uh, 2006 is when I went full-time uh, with doing production. Actually, 2008 is more of a full-time thing for me. But coming from uh, bands that I've been in and producers that we've worked with, one comes to mind, uh, uh, Jason Jason Livermore and Bill Stevenson from The Blasting Room in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, we made two records with those guys. And just learning from those guys and their work ethic, it, that pretty much changed my life and of in how I do stuff now. And, um, you know, it's about the love. Like, I just started doing it, and I just kind of fell in love with it. Yeah, like, the more you do it, obviously, you know, you get you get great at things. And um, it's just about finding your, your niche. So, you know what's funny, though, about the whole, uh, speaking of the polished niche mm-hmm. or sound? Because my partner, Joey Sturgis, he, uh, he also, for his genre of metal like he also had a very polished sound mm-hmm. and i remember um back in the day when andy sneep was the big metal guy uh he had a very polished sound and people would sometimes talk a lot of shit about them and just be like every mix sounds the same mm-hmm. like they're just hacking it or whatever and uh, that is the farthest thing from the truth and i have proof that it's the farthest thing from the truth because the nail the mix uh if it was so easy to make a mix sound polished and perfect then at this point in time we would have well over 10,000 students whose mixes sound better than Joey's sure. and who are like you know on that level or mm-hmm. on the level of any of the people we've had on who uh do the polish thing but I hear the mixes that are submitted every single month mm-hmm. uh, for our mix poll. We get like well over 500, and I hear them, and it is not easy mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. It's uh, And I know it's not easy, and it's interesting to me that people will sometimes scoff at it until they kind of have to try it, <laughs> and then they realize that it's borderline impossible. Absolutely, yeah. So what what drew you to that? You know, I think just the fact that I could... When I started learning Pro Tools back in 2005 and six, and just, I spent like eight months, basically just, I had no job. And I just uh, dove in, learned all I could, watched a bunch of videos that were at that time on YouTube. And the fact that I could manipulate, you know, my guitars or my drums, whatever, and make them as tight as I wanted it to be, that just resonated with me. I was like, man, this is really cool. Like I can make, I can make records that sound pretty cool now, you know? So I just started doing it. And the more I got into it, the more my love, and this is going to sound funny because everyone hates editing, right? They say they do. Yeah, they say, but it has to be done, right? It's one of those things that just, you got to do it. I mean, half the things on my website are just basically me doing, you know, vocals, like vocal editing and comping and tuning for these artists. And I just love, there's something about it, the before and after for me, that's like, man, this is great. Like this is, it take, okay, it might take me like 10 hours to do one song, but it's going to be epic when it's done. You know, that's, that's my thing. And my pop sense of just what I like, it just kind of grew into this, this thing that I love. I don't know. So I'm, I'm all about, I mean, and the thing is too, is uh, if someone doesn't want that, that kind of sound that I'm not the right guy for, you know, and I'm, I'm cool with that. That's fine with me. You know, it's not like everything, everything I do is completely like, you know, to the T, but I mean, a lot, most of it is, you know, it's, it's going to, you know, especially with the, 
the artists that I'm working with or they're all on the pop uh, side of even pop rock or whatever it is. It's just going to be more, it needs to be perfect, you know? It's interesting. I just spoke to a guy named Jack Shirley yesterday on the podcast. Um, he's a producer out of the Bay Area, best known for his work with a band called Deaf Heaven, mm. which is like a I, I don't know what to call them. They're like a black metal band kind of, but he has the very DIY ethic, which is kind of like very few edits. It is what mm -hmm. it is. Um, and his records sound great too. So what I think is important for people to realize is that what matters here is knowing who you are as mm -hmm. a producer and having your own voice and being able to tell artists that don't fit in with that vision, or hopefully getting to that point, because obviously when when you have no clients, you kind of have to take what you can get. But mm -hmm. working to get to the point where you can say, this isn't a good fit, and this is, and should work with uh, this band and not that band, because uh, that band wants something totally different, something that I don't do. Absolutely. There's been times where I've put bands in the, in the direction of, of different producers just because I knew that I wouldn't fit what they were going for, you know, and that's, and I'm, I'm totally cool with that. I, I think, you know, it's, like I said, it's just kind of like, it's about finding what you, what you're great at and what you love to do and, and make that work basically, you know. Did you ever regret sending a band to somebody else? It's happened maybe three times in the last like, you know, 10 years. So it hasn't been... Okay, great. So no, it's not. It's not a lie. The, the thing is, like, since basically since like two thousand and nine or so or ten, the the people that come to me kind of they kind of know what they're what they're getting their, themselves into, basically. So it's, it hasn't been a thing. It hasn't really been a thing where it's like you know very often that happens. Yeah, just the fact though that you're willing to say that it's kind of it's the same thing. Just like if someone goes to to Jack Shirley or Kerpaloo wanting what you do or what Joey does, that's that's dumb on the band's part. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember when I was working at a studio in Florida that did all this uh, extreme metal stuff, we would get people who wanted the Joey Sturgis sound, and it would be like, well, go to Joey. <laughs> like, that you're coming to the wrong place. This is not, we don't do what he does. Mm -hmm. What he does is great, but that's not what we do. And, mm -hmm. If that's what you want, you're going to be sorely disappointed mm -hmm. when you get the mixes back. And I learned uh, kind of the hard way by taking on clients that wanted what somebody else could deliver at times mm -hmm. and then them not being happy and me getting frustrated. And then it took it took once or twice for me to realize, look, it's not even worth working with these people because, uh, yeah, you get paid, but they're not going to come back. Right. They're going to have a bad impression of working with you. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to be able to do your best work for them because there's a bad vibe because what they want is what somebody else can do. So, you know, if you know from the outset that people want something that's not in your wheelhouse, do the honorable thing, in my opinion, if you, if you can afford, if you can afford to. Correct. If you're, yeah, if you're just kind of like getting going, you're like, man, I got to take some, some work, then maybe... Maybe you just go for it and do your do your best, you know, but well, there's also the thing that at the beginning stages, there's two things that I think should be happening. Um, but these are let me just say that before I start pissing everybody off, that 
let me just give a disclaimer that I understand that this is not possible for everybody, okay? So this is not possible for you uh, out there, like, don't get mad. I'm just saying that this would be ideal, uh, that it, when you're first starting out, that your overhead is as low as humanly possible so that even if you're not getting that much work or any work, you find a way to pay the rent so that you can say no to artists that aren't going to help you progress or you just take those as uh, practice sessions or whatnot, mm -hmm. um, but not serious sessions so that you can open yourself up to saying yes to the to the right people. But, um, you know, it might involve not doing some paid work for a little while, mm -hmm. uh, offering your services for free in order to win over certain people or turning down other artists that you don't want to work with. And um, if your overhead is really low, that might be possible to do. Mm -hmm. And look, if you're trying to start a production career and you have three kids and a mortgage you may not be able to do that. But, you know, if you're 21 or 22 and, uh, you know, maybe you have a little family support or, you know, figured out how to live for cheap and have a part-time job, then it's way easier to do this. Absolutely. So you were a musician first, right? I am, yeah. Okay. So how long did you do the music thing before the production thing came along? So my first band, uh, Hang Now, was on this label called Tooth & Nail Records. We did three records. Oh, I know Tooth & Nail. They're a good label. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you did uh, some, what is it, August Burns, right? right? Yeah, August, August Burns, right, yeah. Nice, nice. So I did, we did two records with Hang Now. That was, 98 was when we graduated high school. And we were actually a band like three years before that. So basically, out of high school, 98, we put our first record on Tooth & Nail. And then we toured for like a year or so and did the same thing for two more records. So that was 98 until somewhere 2002 or three or so. And then we broke up, long story. But um, I joined this band called Acceptance from Seattle. And so I moved out to Seattle and we did a record out there with uh, Aaron Sprinkle that was on Columbia Records. So we toured for like f probably, and we probably toured, we had an EP that came out first and then we did a, a full length. That was like almost a four year run of touring. So that was, and then that ended at about 2006 or so. So it's been since 98 to 2006 was pretty much on the road and making records and doing all that stuff. So 2006 then is when I actually, Acceptance broke up and I moved to California with my buddy Christian um, from Acceptance. And we started a new band out there and we were living with our manager for a while. And then six or seven months later, after we moved, moved there, uh, he got a call to join in Berlin. So he went and, went and did that. So, and then I went back home to Milwaukee. <laughs> the end. The end. Yeah. <laughs> so do you think that all that experience though, as a touring musician helped you relate to your clients better? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a business. We're on the road doing our thing, being a business. And so we have to figure out how to make that work. And, you know, in the end, and talking to, you know, to people every day and every night at the shows and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so absolutely. And I mean, even what I learned from the producers that we worked with, with those making those records, I wasn't really into production, but I, w I was getting into it at, as we were making these, as like for acceptance, especially watching Aaron Sprinkle do his thing. 
and learning from just learning what I could from him. It was it was pretty cool. He's great, by the way. Yeah, he is. Yeah, uh, I haven't heard his work in a minute, but um, mm-hmm. I uh, mix engineered um, a Demon Hunter record. Oh, nice! Uh, back in like 2012 or something mm. uh, that he produced, and the production was immaculate and. Mm. Not just that, but super musical. He's just really, really good. That's the thing, and he's a genius musician, which just help. It just helps everything out when he does starts doing production work. You know, yeah. Working with him, so that made you kind of see the light as far as production goes. Absolutely, yeah. Because it, what was cool about it was that we, the band, would come in and we we do a day. You know, we record whatever we need to, drums or guitars, and then like the next day we'd come in and there'd be like just extra production stuff that just sounds epic to us. And it's like, he would just do that like on his downtime, you know, before we were even there in the, at the studio. And that happened all the time. Like he just hears these things and and he does it so fast, which is kind of incredible to me. He, he hears it and he'll just go up. Oh, I know what I need there. And he's cause you know, throw it in there and it sounds, it sounds perfect. So yeah. So, so knowing that a producer could actually add to the song, you know, I mean, as far as like, he can, you know, he can, as far as, as long as the band's okay with it, he can write stuff to, for the, for the song or do whatever he needs to. And seeing that, I didn't really, I didn't realize that. I thought like back then I just thought a producer was just going to like, uh, you know, basically an engineer hit record and let the band do his thing. So seeing, seeing what he added to our songs was, was a very opening for sure. I guess after working with him, is what was the inspiration that got you into recording? Was it just like this guy's? Now I know what you can do. The band's done. Got to do something. Or how did how did it come along? That was pretty much exactly what it was. Like so, yeah, the band was done. I moved to California, and those seven months in California, in LA, was when I bought I purchased Pro Tools and just started going for it, and didn't have a job. We're just living off some 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 uh, some publishing money that I had and <laughs> spent it all, but that was that was my training for Pro Tools. My, that was like my my uh, my my school, and I just kind of learned all I could. And then when I came back um, to Milwaukee after those seven months, I moved I moved into a space, a studio that was in uh, actually it's in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and uh, I uh, used a space there and started just recording bands and just and just went for it. Did you still have hope for the band thing to work out, though? Or were you kind of like, been there, done that, doing this now? I think for the first year after, a year, like probably like maybe a year and a half after the band broke up, I was like, uh, within within that year, I was like, I kind of I kind of wanted to still do the band thing, right? Because it was, we were still hot. It was, it was a thing still. I was kind of into it. But then after that year, year and a half or so, I just kind of started, you know, the, as, as my production stuff started building, I was like, you know what? This is this is better. I can stay home. I can probably have a family at some point and I'm kind of done with the band thing. And that, I mean, for me, it's been like, what's it's like, it was like seven years of touring. So I was kind of, uh, you know, I was kind of over it then after, at the, after that year or so. I could just totally relate because I had a band that I guess we got together in 2000, but got signed in like 2005 or six and ended at Right at the end of 2010, 2011, and right coinciding with when I got my first bigger studio gig. I had been recording for like 10 years before that, but mm. for that first year uh, of the band being broken up, I was thinking, maybe I'll start another band. Mm-hmm. Like I, I had a few false starts, and I think it was just like wired into me, like from all that touring and all that 
it, just being in a band that's actually doing something is so like life consuming mm -hmm. that it's hard to just put on the brakes and stop. So it, like I think for a good year, uh, I was kind of halfway wanting to maybe do another one or something. But then at some point, it was around a year as well. It was just like, nah, you know, this is way better. <laughs> and the idea of starting another band just fills me with anxiety. Oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no way I can, even when bands come in and I, and I, and I'm producing bands, it's like, man, I, I don't want to say it to them, but I'm kind of like, man, this is, you guys, good for you guys. Like, this is like a big task, especially nowadays, you know, with how, how music is. But like, I couldn't even think twice about doing that now, you know, starting a new, or, you know, it's just, it's a big, it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, more power to them. And exactly. there's actually, I, I feel like there's a lot of great bands now, like in the past few years, there's been a resurgence in quality and I'm very, very happy about that. I'm mm. stoked beyond belief, but the idea of starting a band just, and like going, being in a van and like starting mm -hmm. from this beginning, just like just fills me with dread <laughs> like I, I would never do it and mm -hmm. um but like yeah it took it took a year to get that out of my system mm -hmm. uh, interestingly enough though uh production wasn't it for me either uh i like i was kind of into it but i never totally gave myself over to it um i tried but mm -hmm. it just wasn't the right fit oh what i'm doing now is but what I'm doing now kind of is built off of what I did in production and what I did in the band. All of it kind of put together mm -hmm. into this thing. But uh, I, it's interesting to me just like when people make transitions, w like whether they're forced transitions or not forced, like at, at what point they're 100% aligned with that transition and when they're kind of kind of there and kind of not. And I find that most of the time it's kind of there, kind of not at first. I would say that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even for me, I was living with my, in my, with my parents when I, in 2006, when I came back from California and living for free, I knew a bunch of bands around Kenosha, Milwaukee, Chicago. So I started with, you know, just dirt cheap deals for these guys. Like, Hey, come on in. I'm, I'm learning too. Let's learn together. Let's figure it out. You know, I think for me, I'm kind of, I don't know, I have a weird personality where I feel like when, when I do switch something over, like if I'm, if I'm going to come right off touring and go into this production thing, I kind of just have to go, I just go for it full on. And now I did get a part-time job at the post office <laughs> uh, working on, <laughs> on Saturdays just to, just to get by for those first couple years of me figuring out how to make, how to record bands. Right. So I did, I did do that. Um, which helped pay pay some of the bills, but um, but again, I was living for free with my, at my parents, so I was like, okay, this is this is. I mean, I, you know, if I had a rent to to do, if I had a rent, or if I had a wife or kids, like, there's no that that would have been much harder transition to make happen. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually just mean the the mental part of it because mm -hmm. when I when I've made transitions like that, when I decide to do something, I go all in. Mm -hmm. Like when I decided to start URM, I stopped making records. Like mm -hmm. I didn't do some records and then try to start a company at the same time. I was like, I, I'm going to start a company now and that's what I'm doing. And then when I got that first big studio gig, like that was it with playing in bands. Mm -hmm. And I actually got a bunch of opportunities in that first year and I 
turned them all down and had only one false start that lasted like two weeks wow. with some musicians. And I turned down a bunch of opportunities. Uh, because And even though I kind of halfway wanted to take them, it was just like, look, you have to make a decision. Mm. That, and the decision is, are you going to do the studio thing or are you going to do the music thing? You can't do both really, really well mm -hmm. unless you're a freak and you're not a freak. So <laughs> make a decision. Yeah. And then it, the same thing later. It's like, are you going to start a business or are you going to be a producer? Make a decision. But don't be a producer with a half-ass wannabe business on the side. Like, mm -hmm. make a choice. Absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think you have to make make those choices in life because I, I really believe that statement. Um, you can do anything you want, but you can't do everything. <laughs> so, yeah. Totally. Yeah, uh, I definitely, I definitely do believe that's true. So, mm -hmm. I have a few questions for you about some of the specific work that you've done. Mm -hmm. So, you worked on the Color Morales "Pray for Me" acoustic release, and uh, the song itself has real beautiful warmth and clarity. And can you talk a little bit about your work on this one? Wow, dude, that's <laughs> that's going way back there for me. Um, I got to think of that was, you know, honestly, it's it's a bit of a blur because that was done like in probably 2000, I mean, what, 12 or something maybe or somewhere in there, 13, 14 maybe. That was like a one day thing and I can't even honestly remember how it went. I'm not even, I'm not even joking. <laughs> I think that that's a good enough answer. <laughs> the reason I, I'm saying that is because I get, emails all the time asking me like so what was uh what were the amps used on this record mm. from 2013 it's like <laughs> dude <laughs> i don't know i don't know what i ate for breakfast this morning so i can't really tell yeah, you yeah <laughs> like i don't remember last week the only thing i rem i know from how that came about was devin king was in a, a band before that, that I recorded his band. And that was probably, I mean, 2008 or something or nine. And so we've stayed in contact and that's kind of how that came across my play was through Devin asking me to do that for them. So that's all I remember from that session. <laughs> well, came out great. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. So back to the transition between touring and production, uh, with all that touring that you did, I'm guessing that you had a substantial opportunity for very good networking, especially, you know, just all that touring and then living in L.A. for a, a while. And I feel like when you're in that situation, the point is just making it work and not totally blowing it. It is mm -hmm. easy to totally blow it, but, you know, um, the, if you don't totally blow it, it's a huge opportunity to plant lots of seeds for the future. Do you have any social advice you might be able to give uh, listeners to help navigate social waters when they're in, I'd call, uh, fruitful mm -hmm. or potentially fruitful social situations? Yes, I do. Because I learned it the hard way because uh, I wasn't like the social butterfly in the band. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I hung out and talked to people, but like after the show, I was in the RV going to sleep because I would, I was, I was like the morning driver. I wake up at like seven and start driving. So one thing that I re regret from all those touring days is 
keeping those contacts and saving those kind of contacts, you know, in your phone or wherever, you know, wherever. And I, we toured with a ton of bands that I had, I had some great opportunity. I mean, I did, you know, create some good contacts, but there was a lot more that I could have had if I would have taken the time and said, Hey, let me get your number real quick, or let me just, you know, get your email and we'll, you know, we'll keep in touch or whatever. I think that's the thing that I, after coming off the road and going into production full time, I realized like that I had some great opportunities that I missed because I was here in the room with these people and I could have just cre- created more contacts. And, and so that's, that's my, my um, advice for all these young guys out there. Like whoever you meet, you never know. Like, I mean, for us, for me, it was like, you know, I remember going on tour with this band called Fall Out Boy and, you know, we were all in vans back then and, you know, Patrick would come in. On, I've, I've heard of Fall Out Yeah, you've heard of them, right? <laughs> <laughs> they win like some guitar center competition or something like local band of the year. I don't even know. Probably no. I'm, I'm <laughs> Maybe they actually did. No, right. <laughs> no, and I just remember like for that's a good example is this when Patrick would come into our van and he was like just kind of playing guitar and he's writing some stuff and like we thought at that point we, I, I thought like who's this guy coming into our like he, we don't even know him very well. It's like our second day of tour and he was just he was just, he wanted to like write songs with us and we're like okay well, that's cool man you know just because that's what how he is he just likes to write music that's just how he was yeah back then he's just a writer he writes like crazy you know and, and now it's like now, looking back and i'm like man i wish i would have created a better relationship with with patrick you know or all those guys so you never you just never know who you're going to meet and who the, those friends could become and you know you just, i don't know so yeah that's my regret from all those years of touring and not not really keeping a ton of those contacts so i kind of share that with you because i actually think that um I kept a lot for being such an introvert. And and actually, a lot of them now are coming back into play, strangely enough, like because I have to talk to a lot of label people in order to secure rights for Nail the Mix. And a lot of people from my past are popping up, and I'm really thankful that things were left on a good note the majority of the time. Uh, you can't win with everyone, but mm-hmm. the majority of the time it was left on a good note. But it also makes me think that because I'm introverted, I also was the guy who would go hide a lot of the time mm-hmm. uh, after a show or something like that. And who knows how much more I could have amplified things now if I had taken the time to meet even more people and be friends mm-hmm. with even more people. Um, because based on how much my network has done for me as is, I can only imagine that it could be multiples, maybe. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, I highly suggest that people don't put themselves in a position to regret uh, not having uh, seized a relationship with somebody. Mm-hmm. Without being a punisher at the same time. Sure, sure, yeah. Yeah, it has to be a real relationship. Exactly, yeah. Which actually I find is the tough part because if you're not feeling sociable, Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to fake it. It's kind of a catch-22. It kind of is, yeah. I found a lot of times that networking uh, in the moment was basically, it was never something that led to business in that moment, or very rarely was it like networking now leads to something now. It was always about planting a seed 
for later. Do you have any stories like that where some networking you did at one point in time led to a future client or a future opportunity or something of the sort? I mean, yeah, I kind of feel like that's that's kind of like the norm now as far as the last four years have been. Um, one example is um, with acceptance being on uh, crush management uh, back then. And now Crush, you know, has Panic! of the Disco and Fall Out Boy and all those kind of bands. I've kept in contact with um, some of those guys. And now this was 2005 when Acceptance was happening. And just about 2014 or so, I reached out to him and said, hey, you know, how's, how's it going? And just, you know, kind of reaffirming what I do, you know, nowadays and see if they have any work for me. And they got me some, a couple things from that. It was just me just reaching out with an email. And uh, that's how I got the uh, Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness mix that I did for them. And um, what else did I do for them? Something else I can't remember. But that's one example, but there's a ton, I'm sure. So you so you knew them from 2005 and when did you reach out to them? 2014. So 2005 is when they were our manager for the band. Uh-huh. And every every other year I would kind of reach out and we'd, we'd still keep in touch with email, but not really like asking for work, you know, or something like, Hey, I want to do some crush stuff. You know, it was more just saying hi. Then in 2014 is when I kind of like reached out and said, Hey, you know, I'm doing production stuff and mixing. Let me know if you got anything. And they came back and and threw me some work, which is great. It's, it's interesting though, because that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about is, uh, years of not asking Hmm. over the years of keeping that relationship alive. Uh, I'm sure that they realize that you're sticking around and are not, you know, not full of shit, basically. Yeah. I think that's probably why I didn't reach out sooner because I was still, like, I just wanted to get really good still. So I just needed some years to get to to a place where I felt like that I was worth it, basically. (laughs) The whole, like, mundane stuff that you do every day to me is is it doesn't go unnoticed it's like it's a thing that you're just you're constantly learning so it's you just want to you know every day it's like even though some days might be harder than the other days but um you're still learning through all that stuff and it just makes you better you know so absolutely so how does all this lead to hillary duff <laughs> so that's a good story a friend of mine jared bettis he's a producer in uh in Los Angeles now. So I have a bunch of, of people in LA and Nashville that send me songs to work on and to mix and to edit and that kind of stuff. So he, he was a big part of getting me some good, some good jobs. Um, one being that, uh, Melissa Etheridge, uh, record that I mix as well, but he's, he's got his hands in all kinds of stuff out there. He's writing with artists. And so, um, he worked on a song with Hillary for her last record and so basically what I did with Hillary I, all I did for that for that song was I comped and edited her vocals I didn't do any production work although I did track some some ba- some background vocals in Kenosha for that song all the things on my on my website it's it's so random but like there's all these things come from different people that I've I've met or known and people that, that trust me to do do this stuff. But um, so that's how that's how the Hillary Duff thing came about. Hey everybody, if you're enjoying this podcast then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you remember, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, 
Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics. And Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy slash enhanced to find out more. When you're working on something that's, I guess, there's a lot riding on mm-hmm. on something like that, maybe. And not to say that it's more or less important than like a rock record, but there's typically a lot more riding on it just because there, there's a lot more money invested typically mm-hmm. in a pop artist uh, than a rock artist. There's just, there's just more. I, th- I feel like the stakes, depending... Obviously, you know, if it's Slipknot or something, you know, mm-hmm. stakes, stakes are pretty high. But in general, pop is way bigger than rock and the stakes are higher. Is there more pressure on your end when you get handed something like that and are told, do your thing? Or is it just another song that you're just going to do you on mm-hmm. and hopefully they love? I think there's a level of importance when, you know, when a song comes in. like that like it's again it goes back to just the practice like I feel like I've had so much practice now that I've I feel pretty confident going into um like a Hillary Duff and making sure it's like her vocals perfect you know that kind of thing so I think but still there is a level of yeah there's there's you know her A&R and then there's all these people at the label that it needs to be perfect otherwise they're not gonna they're not gonna love it and that particular song was not recorded that well, her vocal. So there's a lot of noise, a lot of just stuff all over the place. So that one was a bit hard. But I would say, you know, I spend a bit more time just to just to make sure it's like, okay, you know, I go through through with a, with a fine tooth comb and, and uh, as opposed to, okay, you know, here's the normal whatever rock band I'm doing. Like I, I know it's going to be fine in the end, but there's no label behind it. There's no, you know, it's all indie stuff. So there's a different, there's a, there's a level of, of you know importance there yeah just the stakes yeah are way yeah. higher can we talk a little bit about your process of what you mean by fine tooth comb and <laughs> especially as related to a recording that's not as good reason i'm asking is because most people listening the stuff they're going to be working on is not going to be that great mm-hmm. uh, i mean sometimes you know they'll get the opportunity to work with some pristine tracks. But by and large, they're going to be working either with local artists who can't sing very well or mixing stuff that wasn't recorded very well or whatnot. And so we're, you know, polishing something that Mm -hmm. just wasn't 
executed that great on the engineering end or whatever is is kind of common. So can we talk a little bit about your fine tooth comb process? Sure. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's pretty uh, deep question, but I think I can try to answer that. Um, you can get nerdy. Okay. People. I'll get, I'll get a little nerdy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I will say that I will say that, and this is why I like what I do, but I like as far as like being a post guy and making things, making things uh, nice on the, on the back end, as far as editing goes, I would say 80% of the songs that I get to mix only the vocals are just not they're just not great you know they're either auto-tune is on set with auto and you can hear everything everywhere or they're actually tuned but they're super bad tuned by bad you mean like to the wrong note or uh that or you can just hear the tuning very very okay. well yeah which I'm, I'm a fan of not hearing tuning so unintentionally able to hear the tuning correct yes and that's kind of probably why i started doing a lot more editing stuff because I feel like there's, <laughs> I just got sick of hearing every song I get to mix. It was like, okay, well, what's going on with these? Why is there so much noise in these guitars or why, or, you know, why aren't these palm guitars tighter? You know, they're like 50 milliseconds off or whatever, whatever the thing may be. I like to hear it tighter. So I think drums for one, uh, I mean, you know, who's, I mean, who's not replacing drums nowadays, right? That's going to help the drums in a, in a nutshell, kicks and airs or toms, whatever you're doing to, to replace drums. But again, if you don't have rooms or overhead overheads that are recorded nice or good, it's just not, it's just not going to sound good. It is what it is. This, you can only do as much as, as the source gives you, but for guitars, you know, if you're doing rock or whatever it is, and there's, there's tight, tight polymutes all over the place. Like those things have to be feeling good with the drums and the kick and all that kind of stuff. So that's, you know, I'll spend time and if they're not good, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it. And, you know, I'll, I'll save a alternate playlist just, just in case the band freaks out that it's, they want it, they want it sloppy. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's all about the vocals. So if the vocals come in and if they're not tuned at all, which happens all, which is, that's fine. If it's like real bad, I'll, I'll ask the producer. If it's like, okay, I'll just, we'll just leave it and go for it. But if it's bad, I don't want to like just go through it and, and put out something bad. I want to talk to the producer and say, hey, listen, you know, these aren't tuned very well or whatever. I'll say in a nice way and say, hey, can we just tune these or can we, or do you want to leave, should we leave them as they are? Hey buddy, never tune anything again. <laughs> right. So, you know, I'll, I'll take, it's, it's kind of, for me, it's about taking those extra steps because... If if it's gonna make the song five percent, ten percent better, then that's I think we should do it. Uh, that's I mean, why not? Basically, you know, if if it costs, I mean, maybe I charge them a little bit to to do it, whatever. But I to me, that's it's those small details um, that make everything. And I think for vocals too, it's just it's one of those things that every song, I mean, every song you get is just so different. If I'm if I'm mixing and and you just kind of have to take it as as a song by song project and just see see what you got to do to it. You know, what are some of the common issues you get though besides the tuning being fucked and a second part to that is oh how do you go about fixing the bad tuning okay well the vocals to me are the fir the first thing that cut that will pop out and be like okay this is not good the drums would be the second thing that no 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 but i, I mean specifically in vocals like when you get vocal let's talk only about vocals okay like when you get vocals specifically what are the most common problems you get w with vocal tracks besides the tuning Timing, I would say. Um, I mean, tuning's the one, yeah, obviously number one. But timing, I think too, is it's it's it has to feel right. It has to feel like it's in the pocket, and that would be. I think timing is it's it's just not a, it's not. 
um, as it's not a thing or, or it's, I, I mean, to, for tuning, it's like, I hear that in like every song almost I get, but for timing, that's, that's less of an important thing. Um, but I, I, for me, because I do so, so much vocals, I he- I just hear all that stuff. I hear like, okay, why is the chorus so early on this line? And why is it, you know, so I'll just go through and kind of like time those things a little bit better if I can. Man, I, I don't know if I agree with you that it's not as important. Like, I almost feel like it's equally, because if the if the feel isn't there, um, if it's not in the pocket, like, like it makes me insane. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, I meant that just like what you hear first of all, like when you first, oh, okay. when first yeah. yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's got, it's got to be in the pocket. And that's, I think, my process of doing vocal editing for a song that I produce is pretty intense, but it's like a fail-safe way to get to the end result. And it's like, okay, there's no questions about it. Like, here's the vocal, and that's that's kind of what it is, you know? Do you get issues often where shit was just tracked in a horrible environment, so you have, mm-hmm. like, weird room reflections into in the microphone that somehow you got to get rid of uh, any noise problems like that it happens i mean from time to time not not very not very much but um and those are the kind of things that i will attempt to do some magic eq whatever it is and then go back to the producer and say hey this this is how it sounds i can't do much about it and if they want to recut the vocals great but if not, then that's just kind of what it is, unfortunately. So I've always thought that, like, really the one thing that is the hardest to fix and is the most, I guess, the most appropriate for a redo is that bad vocal environment mm. stuff. Like when they track in a room that's that just has reflections all over the place and you just have just weird shit in the mic that mm-hmm. you can't EQ out. It's just there. Like, I've heard that Isotope RX can fix it to a degree, but I personally don't know of any way to really, really fix that stuff. Yeah, I heard some great things about that plugin as well, but I, th- I think you're right. I think it's like, you just got to recut the vocals, you know, <laughs> basically. I, I think that RX does magic, but it does magic for stuff like noise. I could mm-hmm. be wrong. I mean, hey, listeners, if I'm wrong here, please let us know because I personally have never used it. I just know a bunch of people who use it and who have used it for me. Um, and so what I understand is that you can, you can definitely do some black magic with it. But I, I know that I have given vocal tracks to somebody to try and fix that were, you know, given to me that were like recorded in a bathroom or something. (laughs) And, uh, it, they weren't fixable. It's happened a few times, and I've never had anyone actually successfully or me be able to fix that problem. So what what did you do then in that occasion? Did you just go back and say, hey? May I asked them to retract the vocals. Okay, yeah. It never happened when I tracked them. <laughs> like, when I track vocals, I set up a fucking fort. <laughs> like, I don't like vocal booths because vocalists tend to not like vocal booths. Mm-hmm. And I like to be in the room with the vocalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, it's just better for me. And for them, like, just the way that I work is I like to be able to look them in the face and just, I don't know, it just works better. Mm-hmm. But because of that, um, I have to build a fort, and basically I build a gobo fort that goes up 
to the you know have a thick carpet underneath them go for it in front and on both sides of them mm-hmm. and then also on top so like so we cap so we make the fort about seven feet tall or something like that you know a, a little bit taller than the singer so that he doesn't feel claustrophobic right right and then we de- we do put a gobo on top and then uh he sings from or she sings from inside the fort and um you know usually it's a 57 which has really good you know rejection from mm-hmm. the back so you're so you're good even in a more live room I'll build a crazy ass fort like I'll, I'll go to great distances to make sure that the room <laughs> is not messing up the vocal take sure absolutely that's just, that's the, I mean that's the worst one if you do don't do that and you go back later on and you're like oh shoot now I hear it you know that that's that's the worst yeah well you know I fucked up vocals back in earlier days and got reamed out for it so. <laughs> <laughs> it's never fun to be told that you have to tell a vocalist to redo everything because it's your fault. Absolutely. Yep. I just I just heard a podcast the other day of of uh, a producer working with a band for three weeks and then um, he lost everything and they, he had to go back and just say, hey, we have to redo it or I'll give you your money back and you can go you can go somewhere else and do your record. Was that me? <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> because no. I do have a story like oh, that. Oh, do you really? Where, wow. Yeah. Uh, what happened and. It, uh, Listeners, forgive me if I've told this before, but um, the my studio got struck by lightning oh. back in like 2005, the you know pre cloud backup or anything mm. like that. It, it got struck by lightning right when I was backing up, so I had both backup drives hooked up, um, and I was doing like a mirrored backup, like I always did, mm. and I was working on two records at that time. And they were on all three drives. So the one, the internal drive, and then two glyph drives. Remember those? Mm-hmm. Uh, so and then two glyph drives, the big like steel ones yeah. that they used to have, the firewire ones. So like they were backing up, and the weather was getting bad, and there was like three minutes left on the backup. So I'm like, three minutes, okay, three minutes. Susan's is done. I'm unplugging everything, and at about thirty seconds to to done, lightning struck the house, and uh, basically shit exploded. <laughs> like that's crazy, man! Wow. It was like when you see like a submarine room in an action movie take a hit <laughs> and sparks go everywhere or something. It was a frightening, and it was also pink. It was pink electricity. That was the weirdest part. It was, I don't know if you've ever been near a lightning strike, but it doesn't, at least, I've been around two, actually. Uh, I was near a basketball pole that got struck once. Um, I was pretty, I was sufficiently far away to where nothing happened to me, but like, so I've been involved in two lightning strikes. That's crazy. Wow. Possibly three, actually, because I think my house... Wait a second. I think my house in Florida... Yeah, yeah, okay. My house in Florida was also struck by lightning, and it took out our septic, but, uh, wow. I'm not going to come near you. <laughs> I've been involved in three lightning strikes, if you can believe that wow, shit. Wow, that's crazy. So you lost everything on those drives then, right? I had Not just that. Like, the computer was okay. gone. All the outboard gear that was hooked up to it was gone. Like, Gosh. I lost a lot of stuff. Wow. And 
that. But one of the bands was there with me when it happened. Mm. We had just finished tracking, and we were just, like, smoking a joint mm -hmm. and, like, backing stuff up and talking about the session when we're going to get back together. So they witnessed the... They witnessed me noticing the weather and being like, okay, we got three minutes left and I'm unplugging everything. Like, so they were there mm -hmm. and they saw that, like, I was aware of it. And we together were like, yeah, let's just give it three minutes and then we're done. And so they saw the explosion. They knew it was true. And so then I said, look, we can retract this for free. Um, or I can give you your money back or something, mm -hmm. but uh, they were, they they agreed to retrack. Okay, um, and it came out way better. However, the other band who wasn't there, uh, they went somewhere else, and I think that they thought I was lying. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? The reason I think that is because I would think I was lying too. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that they think or they thought that I just lost their shit mm -hmm. or, you know, so, you know, something dumb, like spilled, spilled a beer on it mm -hmm. and lost all, you know, who knows mm -hmm. what they thought, but I don't think they believed me or they didn't care. <laughs> I offered them the same thing. Like we'll redo it all for free, but then uh, they were gone. Okay. Wow, man. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> shit happens. Back your stuff up kids in three yeah. places. <laughs> Well, but cloud didn't exist back sure, then. So sure. what I would do was I would have one on the internal, mm -hmm. one on an external glyph, and then another external glyph that I would take with me to my apartment. Perfect. Yeah. In case the studio house burned down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Crazy. Yeah. The weakness was backing them up at the same time. Sure. But that, that's why I'm kind of OCD about it now. Like, I, I think that everybody should have something like Crash Plan hooked mm -hmm. up in addition to doing multiple uh, physical backups. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, st I still hear stories all the time. People just losing their stuff, you know? It still happens, yeah. I lost something first time since the lightning strike. That was longer. So first time in 14 years. I lost a file somebody sent me. Um, as the Like I said, it's the first time I had lost something in... Well over a decade. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe I lost it. I don't know how I lost it. It was like a 30-minute thing somebody sent me. I don't know where it went. It didn't end up in any of the online backups. There's no record of it on my wow. shit. I have no idea what happened. He had deleted it off his Dropbox, so it was just gone. Wow. It kind of killed my self-esteem for <laughs> a good day. <laughs> <laughs> it still happens to the, to the best of us, but I mean, and it's just the worst when it's like you sp if you spend more than like a day on something, you know, if you s maybe a day you can kind of like, okay, I'll go back and redo it for a day if I have to. But if you're like two weeks deep on something, it's, that's just the worst. <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. It was just, it, it took him like an hour to do and then gotcha. he sent me th a 30 minute edit of it. I just felt terrible. And I also teach people to back shit up. So, but <laughs> Love it. I mean, shit happens. That's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Shit, shit happens. <laughs> so how did Stone Sour come about? So that was just a thing where I just worked on the, uh, his demos. So basically, here's a quick backstory of my 
starting off in production. Uh, the band Skillet is from my hometown. For those of you who don't know who Skillet is, they're this is a, a bigger uh, Christian rock band. And Ben Casca was the guitar player for Skillet back then. And when I started doing production at the studio that I rented out at down in Kenosha, uh, ben had stopped by and I met him at the studio there and we started talking about stuff and um, he is was a producer as well on the side and um, he's like, I got all these bands I want to record, but I got no time. I'm on the, on the road with Skillet and I'm pretty busy. So do you want to do it? I was like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. So that's kind of how like we we teamed up and um, the company Skies Fall was born uh, through through Ben. Ben started this company and at first we were just a recording studio and I was like the main guy doing everything and then it turned into like a uh, recording studio and a slash film. We started doing some videos and doing all this stuff but uh, but Ben uh, had the opportunity to go and write with uh, Corey. He did that. He went. He flew out to Corey's house, did some demos, brought them back and I basically took those demos and did did my thing with them, <laughs> added it, you know, made it, made him sound great, fixed vocals, all that kind of stuff. And so that was all that was for the, for that, for the, for the Stone Sour stuff. Um, it wasn't like a, a record thing. It was just all just kind of demo, demo process for him. Still though. It's cool. Damn yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's interesting because, uh, even Ben was like, man, I'm, I'm about to go on a flight to go to Corey's house. And like, Ben's a Christian obviously. And Corey's Probably, I mean, I'm assuming he's not, but he's like, this is going to be interesting to see how this how this goes. But he he loved it. He thought he they they hit it off great, and it was it was fantastic. So Ben Ben had a great time. Yeah, I, I think Corey Corey's pretty outright not. That's what I figured. Yeah, yeah. I've only met him twice, and but I know a lot of people who know him though, and I have never heard a bad thing about him as a mm-hmm. person. And mm-hmm. my two experiences with him were that he's. Like one of the most positive, uplifting, easygoing, cool, charismatic people. Mm. Like I could go on and on. Like mm-hmm. he's fucking cool. Yeah. Um, and so I, I figured that anyone cool going to work with him would probably have a good time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now at least. Now I don't know about back in 2007 or right. 2003, but like um, what I've heard about. Corey Taylor now is that he's just a kind of an unbelievable human being mm-hmm. to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, my two experiences with him were interesting. I know he wouldn't remember, but I found them to be interesting because I've experienced a lot of people talking about successful people as though they were lucky or something like that. Uh, you know, they don't, a lot of people don't like to credit the person who. Mm-hmm. who made it to the top um or they you know they try to assign some sort of advantage that they had or something like that and i've always thought that yeah to you can get at least in music you can get your foot in the door for sure if you have some pre-existing advantage like you know your dad is at the top of a label or mm-hmm. you're super rich and your dad offers to match the label's uh, advertising budget. I've seen stuff like that happen, but it'll only get you that far. It mm-hmm. won't keep you in the game. It'll it might open a door, but but so that said, I don't believe that you can ever get to that top level without deserving it. Like without sure, because sure. the public can't be fooled. Mm-hmm. And not not mm-hmm. to that not to that extent. Like you can't go multi-platinum and stick around for that long 
without being the real deal. And so when I met him in person, it was instantly like clear that this dude is a star. Have you ever seen those uh, cell phone pictures of like movie stars where it's like them and then two non-movie star friends and it's just like a shitty mm-hmm. picture where like they have like red eye and all that stuff, but yeah. the movie star just looks like a Greek god or goddess <laughs> yeah. and then their two friends just look like normal people. And it's like, yeah, that's because that's what they look like. Like that's not some invention and it's what that frontman charisma mm-hmm. or that star-like charisma mm-hmm. that someone like Corey Taylor has, that's who that person is. Yep, absolutely. I've always thought it was interesting um, that sometimes that gets discounted. Mm-hmm. It gets discounted a lot with pop artists, too. Mm. It bugs me. Yeah. Because I don't think anyone gets there by accident. Sure, sure. Or at least stays there by accident. Well, that was my rant on that. <laughs> so it sounds to me like what you've got going on is a really good example for what's possible if uh, if you do really great work and just kind of stick to your guns. It doesn't matter if you did the demo for Stone Sour or the album, but you keep working and you keep getting work. And it sounds to me like people are coming to you for what you do and you're getting to work with clients that you enjoy working with and doing your thing. And I think that that's kind of living the dream. I mean, I can't complain right now. I, <laughs> I yeah, I love what I do. Um, I think just recently it's been more of a thing um, where I'm starting to maybe say no to things I don't want to do. Um, and this is just only happening. This has probably just been the last couple of years here. But before that, it's been like, okay, I just kind of need to. I have two young kids and a wife, and so with what we have, one income. So it's a bit like. I kind of, I got to pay the bills, you know, for now, but, um, I feel like it's, it's slowly transitioning into, I want to work on more things that I want to work on and less of maybe just like, eh, I'll, I'll pass on that kind of thing, you know, but that's my motto, man. So I just kind of like, I, I figured out what I, what I'm really, what I like to do, what I feel I'm good at. Um, and just really take that to the next level and, and see. And I think also for me, like when I first started recording bands and stuff and, you know, I was a nobody, I was, I still am a nobody, but you know, they come to me with songs and we'd record them and they would leave, you know, it say we did like a, a five song demo. They would leave, you know, after the the week, whatever it was. And then I'd start giving them mixes back and, and they'd be like, man, this is, you know, I think taking it, taking the time to edit stuff and to make sure it's, it's nice and neat the band that's kind of how i feel i i um built this thing basically is by getting these bands in that may not be the greatest bands in the world but they're they got good maybe they have good songs and just you know making them sound great and then them telling their friends and then you know and, and so on and i think that's you know kind of how this whole thing started for me and that's kind of why that's what i love to do is is that kind of thing and um so i feel blessed that i can still be doing it this many years after i started which is awesome um so yeah do you advertise at all uh, i don't i just have a website yeah okay yeah. so it's basically word of mouth it's all word of mouth yeah the reason i'm asking i ask almost everybody this is because i really really believe that advertising is a waste of time <laughs> for producers mm-hmm. uh because every producer i know did it all through word of mouth i mm-hmm. mean they might have a website but the website itself isn't going to it might reaffirm 
who you are if someone's already curious, but mm -hmm. it, they're not going to discover you exactly. off of the website. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I always I, I always tell people that they need to work on building relationships in their portfolio, and then let the word of mouth do the work for you. I mean, it's all about the work. Though. Yeah, exactly. And then it speaks for itself. Yeah, well, I mean, there's no better endorsement than a former client mm -hmm. or, a, or a current client mm -hmm. or a song that somebody loves, the sound of. That's way bigger endorsement than punishing somebody with a business card at NAM, <laughs> which is about to happen to me. Have fun with that. <laughs> you probably guessed from this conversation that I'm not huge into large crowds of people. Mm -hmm. um, this is the first year that I've ever been like a, an exhibitor at NAM. Mm. Um, I've always gone as an artist or a guest or something. And I've only really gone once every other year lately mm. or even three years just because I don't like being in big rooms with a whole lot of people and a lot of fucking cacophony mm -hmm. everywhere. But by the time this comes out, NAM will have already happened. So this year, URM had a booth. First time ever. And I'm actually kind of excited about it. But my schedule is just like, filled to the brim and uh, I, I'm actually kind of looking forward to it. I, I don't want to say I'm dreading it, but I know that I'm going to probably need, you know, days to recover, but it, it's a very different thing going in as an exhibitor than mm -hmm. it is as an attendee. Cause I don't know, it's just a lot easier to make meetings. So I'm actually kind of excited about it this time. I think that's going to be huge for you guys. Yeah. I mean, congrats on that as well. That's, that's pretty cool. Thanks. Yeah. I don't know if we'll ever do it again. <laughs> I thought it was important to do it at least once, but I kind of feel like now that we are an exhibitor, it's time to make up for any networking I didn't do <laughs> in the past. There you go, man. That's the place to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the shot at redemption. But on the topic of word of mouth as related to what we were talking about, the worst thing I feel like people can do, and you know, I just thought about it because they do this at NAM, is come up and punish somebody and just put a card in their face and sell, try to sell their service in the first five minutes of meeting them. That's one of the worst ways mm -hmm. to, to network with somebody. I think that the best way to do it is to just make friends. And it doesn't it doesn't mean friends that you talk to every single day. It can be a friend that you catch up with once a year or something. But, you know, just get on a positive footing with somebody and let it develop naturally. Like you said, like it took you nine years with that label mm -hmm. or well, management company, knowing each other um, from working together previously, but then keeping the relationship alive in a casual way. And I have several people that I know too that maybe I worked with or came across professionally back in the touring days who then I just kind of, you know, we'd say hello once a year, maybe have lunch like once every five years. Mm -hmm. And then recently, for some reason, they came up through something for Nail the Mix and they were there. And I could just hit them up and we could make it work. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I have I actually have one more example that, that I just thought of, of early beginnings with Acceptance being on tour. And there's this band called um, Trios or The Receiving End of Sirens. And that was one of the bands that we kind of became closer with as far as being on tour and kind of like becoming friends and that kind of stuff. So the drummer for that band, uh, Andrew, he's... Um, we've somewhat kept in contact, not, not, ver not very well, but we just, you know, we obviously... 
know each other and we're, you know, we're, we're somewhat friends back then, but, um, he's now playing with, uh, Dan and Shay, who is like the biggest country act pretty much in the world, I feel right now. And it's just such a random thing. And so I'm going to see them coming up here in March and just going to go hang out with, with an old friend that I haven't seen since 2006, you know, but, uh, <laughs> it's one of those things is like, you never know who, you, who, who your friends are going to become or people that you meet and, you know, life takes you in some crazy places. Yeah. And that's exactly why you should try to stay cool with everybody. However, Mm -hmm. don't beat yourself up if that's not a hundred percent possible. Everyone I know who says that still has, you know, a few people that they had that falling out with and Mm -hmm. some bridges, some bridges are not meant to be left standing, but you know, ninety percent of them should be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so some are better burned down. You know, so that yeah. so so the Nazis can't cross them or something. But <laughs> so, you know, dynamite that bridge. But <laughs> but you know, for the most part, you never know. You never know. Yeah. It could be it could be ten years or fifteen years before that relationship turns into mm-hmm. something. And at the very worst. And this is not a bad thing at all, but at the very worst, you have a friend. You say that nothing ever comes of it work-wise, nothing wrong with having a friend, you know? Absolutely. If I knew back then that I was going to be doing production in the future, things would have been, you know, like working for myself. Oh, yeah, I got to get contacts. Things would have been differently. I just, you know, back then it's like you're in a band, you're on tour, you don't really think about a year, you know, one year ahead of you. Let alone 10. Exactly, yeah. The thing is that it's not even production. Uh, it's like, you don't know what life holds. Like, you could be in an industry that doesn't even exist in 10 years. Like, for instance, what URM is doing, we didn't exist 10 years ago. I could have never imagined <laughs> that I'd have something going on that didn't exist back then, but where all my contacts from before were somewhat relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, that So, like, people don't think about the fact that there's stuff that hasn't even been invented yet that they might be involved with that the people they meet now could come into play uh, to help out with, or I mean, let alone production. Yeah. Uh, that too, of course, mm-hmm. or another band or whatever. Who knows? Maybe you end up at a label and uh, you want to help, you know, you want to sign a band and you know this band because you toured with them and that gives you the edge. You mm-hmm. know, you never know mm-hmm. what it's going to be. Uh, so that's why you should take these all seriously mm-hmm. and especially never look down on somebody because they might be in a on a lower rung on the ladder uh career wise because first of all they're not lower on the rung humanity wise Mm -hmm. they're equal to you as people and you should treat them that way and and also because career wise they might be controlling your ladder at some point exactly in the future Mm -hmm. so all the more reason to keep things cool. But mm-hmm. uh, Nick Rad, I think this is a good place to call it. And uh, I just want to thank you for coming on. And is there any way that people can find you that you want to plug? Uh, I guess the best way to find me is just my, well, my website, nickrad.com, or I'm on Facebook, Instagram. I think my Instagram is Nick Radovanovic. It's a long one. Sorry about that. But yeah, if you just search for my name, you'll, you'll find some stuff. Yeah, and we'll link to it in the show notes as well. So, Nick Rad, thank you, and have a great day. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. 
The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Hairball Audio. For nearly a decade, Hairball Audio has been helping musicians and recording studios improve their recordings by offering high-quality outboard recording equipment in do-it-yourself kit form. Check out the full line of compressors, mic preamplifiers, and do-it-yourself parts at hairballaudio.com. Hairball Audio. Do it yourself without compromise. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Sure Legendary microphones, cutting edge wireless systems, premium earphones and headphones. Sure, the most trusted audio brand worldwide. For more information, go to sure.com. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.